0: Welcome to Darkgate Horror Podcast, episode number 25, in which we'll discuss the use of torture in horror films, with an in-depth review of Hostel, Saw, and The Last House on the Left, among others. So as usual, this is a spoiler alert. This episode is m- probably the most mature topic I've covered and is really meant for the adult listener. But first, an announcement. I started this podcast about two and a half years ago because I wanted to have in-depth conversations about horror films that I watched, and so few of my friends are horror fans. There are a lot of great horror podcasts out there, but this one, I was prided as something a little bit different. And it's with a sad heart that I have decided to stop producing this podcast. Between my full-time job, my time-sensitive supernatural podcast, this podcast, my writing, and my outdoor activities, not to mention another possible relocation in the near future, I just don't have enough time. Something has to go. Unfortunately, as much as I love research and writing this podcast, I've decided that I just cannot continue. I have had an amazing opportunities through this podcast, and I want to thank you all for listening. In fact, I just received a great review over at Horror Commentary yesterday. The website is horrorcommentary.com. I plan to finish out this year, so that gives us three more podcasts in addition to this one. But anyway, enough about me. Let's move on to this month's episode. But first, some news. The film Pathology, which I've mentioned several times in the past, released on DVD on September 23rd. I put it in the near the top of my Netflix queue and can't wait to see it. True Blood is a new drama series on HBO, which is created by Alan Ball of Six Feet Under fame and based on the Sookie Stackhouse book series by Charlene Harris. True Blood details the coexistence of vampires and humans in a fictional small Louisiana town. The series centers on Sookie Stackhouse, played by Anna Paquin, a telepathic waitress at a diner who falls in love with a vampire, Bill Compton, played by Stephen Moyer. After the second episode aired, HBO announced it renewed True Blood for a second season. Production will begin early 2009, with new episodes slated to air during the June through August 2009. I am fast becoming a loyal fan of this show and am very intrigued as to how it will play out as I have not yet read the novels. A script is in the works for, get this, Ghostbusters 3, which is being written by two Emmy-nominated writers from the NBC series The Office. They are going to finish the script and then try to get the original cast back together. Variety Magazine, along with other outlets, are reporting this, including Bill Murray himself. It could be interesting. And here's something a little fun. Zombies 2.0, The Outbreak, pumps new life into undead films. It's an interactive horror flick that lets viewers make fatal decisions. It's located at survivetheoutbreak.com. The interactive horror short lets viewers make key decisions for the characters with immediate results. For example, in one scene a character breaks a leg while fleeing from zombies. The action freezes and the viewer is presented with a choice. Save her or leave her. Make the right choice and the film continues on where you are faced with even more critical choices. Make the wrong decision and the viewer gets one final scene before the words, you die, appear on screen. But just like the zombies, viewers don't have to stay dead forever. They can start the film over or click on chapter menu to see their film path to that point. They can then replay a scene and change their minds. The total length of the film, all options included, is 17 minutes. Back when I was a kid, I loved those choose-your-own-adventure books. They were cheesy, but they were fun because you were interactive in the story. And so I liked the fact that they took that concept and applied it to multimedia. In more vampire news, Variety reports that Del Toro is co-writing a vampire trilogy. Producer-director Guillermo Del Toro doesn't have enough things on his plate, apparently. Bypassing the fact that he's already booked through the year 2017 with various production deals, is set to live in Middle-earth for the next five years with two new Hobbit films, and has numerous other projects on the side, such as a planned Frankenstein remake Del Toro is now reportedly moving into the world of novels. Variety reports the man has inked a publishing deal with HarperCollins imprint, William Morrow, to pen a trilogy of vampire thrillers with Chuck Hogan, a writer who has penned the thrillers The Standoff, The Blood Artists, and The Killing Moon. Warner Brothers recently picked up his book, Prince of Thieves, for Ben Affleck to helm and star. Other projects for Del Toro include a modern take on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, an adaptation of HP Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, a Slaughterhouse Five for Universal, as well as Druid based on Dan Simon's novel. He might also be leading a segment of David Fincher's upcoming heavy metal installment. These are just the projects he could be directing over the next decade. He still has numerous other projects that he is attached as a producer. The first book of this new vampire trilogy called The Strain will hit shelves next summer. The plot concept is that the story will revolve around an invasion of New York City by a vampiric virus. The series will trace the roots of the virus. The series will trace the roots of the vampiric race back to Old Testament origins. So that sounds kind of interesting. I am apparently all about the vampires these days. Even my own personal writing is about vampires. So let's move along to our main topic, that of torture. This topic is not for the faint of heart. Torture horror is often referred to as torture porn, a term I do not agree with. I think the term is derogatory to the intent of many of these films. Films that fall in the category of horror usually revolve around not only the usual use of blood and gore, but focus on torture as a means of killing or otherwise debilitating the characters, often as extremely graphic and gruesome methods. Contrary to popular media, which tends to make the general public believe that these films are a new concept within horror, these films have been around a very long time. Torture horror historically has been confined to midnight showings, sketchy theaters, and lowbrow art houses. The recent trend of torture horror, wherein Saw and Hostel belong, has brought the films from the hidden world to the multiplex. In an interview with Professor Avila Briefel, she says, What's interesting about horror is that every decade seems to produce its own monsters. For example, horror in the 1950s was centered on alien invasions, mind control, etc. Most likely is a direct result to Cold War fears. In the 1980s, the slasher films ruled with its pantheon of monsters, Jason, Freddie, Michael Myers, etc. The 1990s began by reviving the genre in an almost parodic way with films like Scream, I Know What You Did Last Summer, and ended with more psychologically frightening films such as The Blair Witch Project and Sixth Sense. Now, with some very notable exceptions, the trend is to remake earlier horror classics, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Hills Have Eyes, etc. I have to say that I'm not particularly thrilled with this trend. However, I think we're also seeing a number of very promising new directors. Eli Roth, director of Cabin Fear and Hostel, is one of these, as is Neil Marshall, The Descent. I haven't seen Feast yet, but I've been reading good things about it. In the interview, she is asked the question, far more than zombies, torture has become the prime horror spectacle these days. Is this a reflection of US foreign policy? And Professor Briefel responds, perhaps. I think that horror films generally display a strong awareness of what is going on politically at a particular period. I already mentioned the Cold War fears expressed in 1950s horror films, and in the 1980s we find fears that are directly related to the traditional family. In Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, for example, Mom and Dad are not always right. I think that we will look back to the kind of torture horror displayed in a film like *Hostel* and examine what it had to say about our own attitudes and anxieties about such occurrences as the Abu Ghraib scandal as articles from the WashingtonPost.com. So why are we fascinated with torture in film? In Scott Kalura's July 12, 2007 article entitled Torture Porn When Good Times Go Bad an IGN investigation, what's driving the current wave of horror films, and what is the phenomenon really about? Kalura poses interesting questions such as, what drives such a trend? What is this phenomenon about? Are the filmmakers creating something more than simple blood and guts exercises in terror? Some kind of communal experience that resonates with audiences on a deeper level? And where exactly is the line between entertainment and social irresponsibility crossed? Kalora hits on the crux of this interesting genre of films. This topic can be looked at in so many ways. We have discussed this before, but many people, myself included, believe that torture horror is essentially a reaction to the horror, fear, and uncertainty in our everyday lives. This topic is hotly contested and deeply political with many layers, so I'm going to try to boil it down to the basics and refrain from discussing most of the political argument. I'd really rather stay away from that. Kalur continues questioning, where better to begin a discussion of this genre than the one and only Wes Craven, the legendary director who helped to pioneer torture horror in pictures like the original The Hills Have Eyes and The Last House on the Left, long before it was ever called torture horror. Whereas those films, released in the early and mid-1970s, were independently made exploitation shockers, Craven has, of course, gone on to become a mainstream success story. Bill Clinton's favorite movie is said to be the Helmers' non-horror, Meryl Streep star, Music of the Heart. As far as Craven is concerned, it's not the horror films that have changed over the years, but rather the audience. It's a change in the attitude, really, and perspective, he tells IGN. It used to be that the studio heads and the kind of grown-up public in general were not familiar with horror films and thought they were something nasty and kind of sick. And now a lot of the studio heads and critics and everybody else have grown up watching the genre and think, we're nasty and sick, but that's good. So there's a lot more openness to it. But it really all comes down to money. Why are these films being released to mainstream audiences by studios? The answer is simple, money. As cited in Clure's article, Eli Roth, director of Hostel and Cabin Fever, stated, The average budget is $80 million, and we made Hostel for $3.8 million. It was nothing, and Cabin Fever was $1.5 million. Super low budget in Hollywood is $20 million. If you combined all three of my movies, it's less than that. It's not one star salary. I'm doing everything on nothing budgets, and people are accepting it. Hostel knocked Narnia out of the number one spot. It was competing with Narnia and King Kong. Jennifer Ashlock, a professor of sociology at the College of Notre Dame, has observed the trend of the torture horror films, and she agrees with the take that cash money is a sort of no-brainer, obvious explanation behind why the saws of the world have soared. But that opens up the question of why audiences are willing to pay to see such films. Dismembered limbs, impalings, slashings, and all... You have a potential to make more money with torture now because that's what actually scares a mainstream audience today, she says. I don't think that they were very popular before because it just seems so far off base. Like that could never happen. And it seemed very fringe back in the 1970s and 80s. Not that you don't have gore back then, but now that it is something that we know is going on in the world. We know about certain atrocities in Guantanamo, for example. Even in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, supposedly, and even in our own American prison system, we know that torture goes on. Because of the internet and the global media, we know that torture is a way of life, really. That information is just more accessible to us. I also think it's more fundamentally frightening to us because it's sort of a given now that torture is happening around the world. As far as cultural influences, Kalura continues saying, Ashlock's mention of Guantanamo Bay leads to a larger notion that many of the filmmakers and critics who support the genre claim is at work just below the surface of your average torture horror film. Here we are, almost six years after 9-11 changed the world forever. Was it not inevitable that the anxieties that have permeated the everyday lives of people, particularly of the Western world and Americans, would begin to manifest themselves in this popular art form? After all, it wasn't so long ago that jokey scream films were the big thing in horror, back when we all felt so safe and cozy. It's almost cliche to see our ideas of fear change over time, says Ashlock. You can argue that this is an ongoing trend prior to 9-11 as well. We are all having this satire of horror in the nineties because maybe we were in La La Land or something, but the horror that is coming out of America that is actually scary is fascinating. We're finally understanding why 9-11 scared us so much. We don't really get what we're afraid of. That's one element of it. But then there's the other element, which is that you don't really know who anyone is anymore. It's this identity stuff. It goes without saying that throughout the history of the horror film, there have always been a reflection in the films themselves of the times we live in a sort of relationship between our engagement with and representation of traumatic violence and forms of historical trauma is how professor Allen refers to it. Take for example, the Vietnam War and Wes Craven's early films like Last House on the Left or George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Of course, this argument is used to validate the genre. It gives it some kind of justification as a form of cultural expression, explains Allen. It in some ways allows the popular audience to work through things that they otherwise can't to allow, say in this case, the torture or horrors of Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo to actually be represented while they're not otherwise really visible to us. So with that said, let's move on to a couple reviews of films that fall into this category. The first I'd like to discuss is Last House on the Left. I finally saw this 1972 film, Wes Craven's directorial debut, last Halloween at an all-night thon at the historic Arrow Theater in Santa Monica, California. The film was outstanding to me in several ways. This article is from slantmagazine.com. Back in 1972, Wes Craven's feature film debut, The Last House on the Left, pushed more than a few puritanical buttons. But it was a scene featuring a girl peeing on demand that seemed to spark the most controversy. Some 30 years after its original theatrical release, this schlocky exploitation of Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring is still the definitive horror filmist cautionary tale. Dr. William Collingward, played by Gaylord St. James, and his wife Estelle, played by Cynthia Carr, smother their daughter Marie, played by Sandra Castle, with listen young lady care before the 17-year-olds head off to a bloodlust concert with Manhattanite best friend Phyllis Stone, played by Lucy Grantham, in tow. Craven evokes the innocence of the love generation via hippie songs, a peace sign necklace, and a carefree stroll through the woods. It's there that Mary and Phyllis... Compare cup sizes and discuss romantic love. When the girls go looking for marijuana, they're kidnapped, tortured, and killed by a group of Manson-esque escaped cons. It's the ultimate Vietnam allegory, except there's no room for peace here, just war. Craven heightens the dramatic tension by expertly cutting back and forth between the Colleen Woods Happy Suburban home and the Stillo Gang's hike through the woods, way before... Drew Barrymore had her larynx cut out and scream, and irony-stoked Craven had the Stilo Posse and unintentionally making their way back to the Collingwood estate. And through this exploitation, Quickie's infamous promotional hook read, It's only a movie. It could easily have been, It can happen in your backyard. Movie-gazette.com has this to say, This rough, low-budget film nonetheless shows Craven's early promise although it is ironic that his later films are much bloodier than this. The film is a comment on the portrayal of violence on film, and to that end, it is the realistic handling of the violence and killings that have brought this film its notoriety. And that mark is that it's different from Craven's later work. This significant film influenced many later filmmakers, but is far from comfortable viewing. So let's move on to Hostel from 2005. I was excited to see this film when it was released, when I saw that it was directed by Eli Roth and produced by Quentin Tarantino. I liked the premise behind Roth's Cabin Fever, although it felt short at the end. I'll tell you up front that I really liked this film. The plot is such that two American backpackers meet an Icelandic backpacker in Amsterdam, and they meet a Russian man who tells the guys that there is a great hostel in Slovakia, where there are a lot of pretty single women who love Americans. The three men travel to the hostel, and their Russian friend disappears. The other two indeed find the women to be very forward in exactly what they were looking for. They tour a medieval torture relic museum, and they find a man wearing their missing friend's jacket. So one of the Americans goes back to the hostel and passes out and awakes in a dank, dark, dungeon-like room surrounded by weapons. The film takes a turn here, and for the rest of the film, the focus is on torture and survival. While this is not the only film to tackle this issue, namely, what would you do if you were in a foreign country and suddenly found yourself in a life-threatening situation? This film not only has the violent and gruesome torture scenes, but it makes it all the more difficult because something like this could hypothetically happen. We live in a scary, unsure world. And this film really has a lot to say about the opinion that other nations have about Americans. We tend to be very self-centered and a lot of us believe that America is the best place to be. However, not all people would agree with that. Namely, 6 billion people in this world, and there are only, what, 240 million Americans? It's actually a small number. And this film really is a social commentary on that opinion. The film's opening weekend in North America took the box office gross to 19.5 million, making it the top grossing film that weekend. It went on to gross a total of $47.2 million in the U.S. The film's budget was around $4.5 million, and the film went on to gross over $80 million at the box office worldwide. Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments, even scarier movie moments, ranked hostile as the number one scariest film moment of all time. I really don't want to talk about the different violent scenes because the film really is an experience and to have a lot of that spoiled for you is really probably not the best way to go. Not to mention many of you have already seen Hostel, so I really don't need to go over all the different types of scenes, but there were even a couple scenes that made me a bit squeamish and that's not typically something that affects me. Hostel Part 2 was released in the U.S. on June 8, 2007. I had tickets to the premiere at the Man's Chinese Theater, but so many people showed up I didn't get in. The film did not live up to its predecessor, however. The torture and violence remained the focus of the film, and the deaths were still interesting. Again, there was a great vengeance scene. I won't go through the details of the deaths, as I have not actually seen the sequel. But one scene I am familiar with is a scene in which a woman named Bathory tortures and bathes in the blood of a victim. This is a reference to the 16th century serial killer named Elizabeth Bathory, who is regarded as the most prolific serial killer in history. Bathory tortured and murdered up to 612 victims. In popular mythology, her bloodlust was driven by a belief that bathing in the blood of virgins would retain her youth. Interestingly, although part of Hungary at the time, Bathory's castle is now in Slovakia, the country in which both hostile films are set. More interesting to me is the film Saw from 2004. The Saw f- series is a franchise created by director James Wan and screenwriter Lee Whannell. Four films have been released. One is set to release October 24, 2008, and one more is scheduled with a video game planned for release in 2009. I was absolutely blown away when I saw the first Saw film, which was released October 29, 2004. I had, have not liked the subsequent films like i did the original it was fresh and in my opinion the best horror film to come around for many years each film concludes with a twist that wraps some things up but also creates more questions to be answered in the following film however later films particularly saw four has given us backstory to understanding the motivations of the jigsaw killer I will, of course, see Saw 5 as soon as I can. The focus of the films is strongly fixated to the creativity of the traps and has less character development, except enough to make connections between characters as necessary for the film to work. The plot of Saw is such, and this is from bloodydisgusting.com, Saw's opening sequence is probably the best in the entire film. It's the most effective, the most gripping, and the most heart-pounding. A man named Adam, played by screenwriter Lee Wenell, wakes up submerged in a bathtub located in a dingy dilapidated washroom, his mind racing a mile a minute. Across from him is another man, played by Carrie Elways, from The Princess Bride, Kiss the Girl, Shadow of the Vampire, etc., who is just as lost and confused, minus the lavish tub. Upon inspection, they both realize that they aren't going anywhere anytime soon, because they have shackles adorning each of their ankles. In the middle of the room lays a body drenched in a pool of blood, gripping a gun in one hand and a micro-cassette recorder in the other. When each man plays a cassette found in their respective garments, the ragged recorded voice informs the two that they are part of an elaborate game that will only end when one of them is dead. And so the Jigsaw Killer's methods of perversion are laid out. He's a voyeur, a sadist, but most importantly, clever. Movie Gazette says, Adam's tape merely taunts him with a challenge to survive, while Gordon's instructs him to find a way of killing Adam by 6 p.m., or else his own wife and daughter will be killed, and he will be left there to rot. Adam finds two surgical saws in the toilet cistern, not strong enough to hack through their chains, but perfect for slicing flesh and bone. Reminding Gordon of the recent case of the so-called Jigsaw Killer, a sadistic game player who never killed anyone, he finds ways for them to kill themselves. It is a case which Gordon is all too familiar, having himself been the prime suspect of detectives Tap, played by Danny Glover, and Sing, played by Ken Leung. Despite their distrust for one another, Adam and Gordon must share their knowledge and pool their resources if they are to have any chance of emerging alive, let alone in one piece. I'm going to refrain from giving away everything, because this film has several well-done scenes, such as the mask scene. The different games the Jigsaw Killer forces his victims to endure are clever, and many of them are very grisly. However, we learn in the fourth film that there's a reason behind the madness of the Jigsaw Killer, and to me this adds a much-needed layer to the overall plotline. Typically, these films don't have much of a plot line. So when Saw 4 came around, it kind of distracted from what was going on. But at the same time, upon retrospect, I realized that this was actually a needed characteristic of the film. In the third and primarily the fourth film, we learned that the Jigsaw Killer, a dying man whose real name is John Kramer, places his victims in deadly elaborate traps designed to test them and give them an opportunity to repent their former lifestyles, in which Jigsaw feels that he took their lives for granted. In a way, by looking at John through this newfound moral lens, it makes him seem more human and not entirely a monster. So let's analyze these films a bit closer. In his January 28, 2000 article for New York Magazine entitled, Now Playing at Your Local Multiplex, Torture Porn, Why Has America Gone Nuts for Blood, Guts, and Sadism? David Edelstein stated, It's actually not a bad little thriller if you can live with the odd protracted sequences of torture and dismemberment. The director, Eli Roth, c- captures the mixture of innocence and entitlement in young American males abroad. They breeze into a former Soviet bloc country the way teens and old sex comedies headed for Daytona, confident that their country's power and prestige will make them babe magnets. And those are some supermodelish babes in a hostile Slovakian village, where life appears to be a non-stop naked sauna party. One of our heroes is confused about his sexuality, though, and sympathetic to an old man who makes a pass at him. It's quite a shock when he wakes up to find himself in chains, with that same old man preparing to eviscerate him. The poor sap screams, pleads, weeps. He doesn't understand why he's in that place. As for me, I didn't understand why I was in that place either, watching through my fingers, or why I'd found myself in similar places many times during the past few years at the Devil's Rejects, Saw, Wolf Creek, and even, dare I blaspheme, The Passion of the Christ. From the screenwriting blog by Marty Langford article, Ugly Times, from July 19, 2007, he says, torture porn. It's a relatively new phrase, one coined by New York magazine writer and NPR radio's David Edelstein, who uses it in a discussion of Eli Roth's 2005 film Hostel. The term struck a chord with the media, who went on to assign the classification to several films that followed. The Three Saw Movies, Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects, Wolf Creek. Touristas, hostile part two and the recent captivity which bombed this past weekend opening at number 11 and making only 1.4 million if we could retroactively apply the term i'd include 2003's wrong turn and hell 2004's passion of the christ a movie my buddy jeff refers to appropriately i think as a splatter film Now, I'm not here to impugn the entire subgenre of torture porn. I kind of like The Devil's Rejects, even though I readily dislike many of the films whose qualities have since earned them the moniker, which by way categorized films that depict sadism, gore, torture, and mutilation – check, 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 and check – for Mel Gibson's passion, right? But even though torture porn is a neat new catchphrase, these kinds of films have been around much longer than 2005. Though the one distinction… That this recent fad shares, in addition to sporting the depravity, rape, blood, and guts, we also see in 1972's Last House on the Left, 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, note that chainsaw is one word, something only us film geeks make note of, and 1978's Cannibal Holocaust, among others, is that these films are now in the mainstream. And that's what worries me a bit about the whole thing. But what is it about hostile that should worry me? Why should I be concerned with the devil's rejects? I'm into the First Amendment. I'm into freedom of expression. As I'm left as they come. Well, what worries me is how in God's name did these movies become mainstream? Films like Chainsaw and Italy's Make Them Die Slowly played in the grindhouses, on the fringe, shocking the mainstream audiences who happened to wander in. These films were subversive. They were transgressive. They didn't glorify the horrors they portrayed. They exposed them, commentating and mirroring the social and political upheaval of the time. Wes Craven's Last House dealt with class struggle. George Romero's 1977 film Dawn of the Dead dealt with consumerism. Both dealt with the horrors of Vietnam. Is hostile a wrong-turn dealing with our post-9-11 culture? Is it speaking to the horrors of Abu Ghraib? Maybe. I'm sure Eli Roth would tell us they do, in fact he has, but where this new wave fails is in creating the sense of empathy we need to feel for the characters that are in peril. I don't like the protagonists in the hostile films or the Saw movies. I don't like the good guys in the Devil's Rejects. They simply represent victim, pieces of meat to be carved up, defiled, and left for dead. And while some may argue the point is for me to relate to the bad guys, to them I say, go watch John McNaughton's Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or Todd Haynes' Happiness. Don't try to tell me that Roth and Rob Zombie and Saw 2 or 3 director Darren Lynn Boosman are trying to make me complicit in the crimes their characters commit by my willingness to buy a ticket. That's a strong opinion. I would have to agree with this blogger because some of this is very true. I agree that these films are not only over the top, but they really aren't social commentaries in the way that the early 1970s films are. However, we live in a different time. And I think these films really are reactions to our world around us. Terrorism can happen on a daily occurrence. We live in a world that is imposed by a lot of restrictions since 9-11 for our own safety. And I think these films are commentaries on that. I enjoy the films. I actually feel kind of bad for John Kramer, the Saw, Jigsaw killer, because he did have a human side to him before he started acting out and torturing innocent people. But there are both sides to this argument. I wanted to present a little bit of both because I think it's important not to just focus on one aspect of these types of films. I want to mention a couple honorable mentions and non-horror films Kalura argues in his article that even non-horror projects coming out of Hollywood have zeroed in on this torture craze, or should we say craze torture from 24 to Casino Royale to the Good Shepherd and beyond torture has seemingly become an everyday occurrence judging by the films and TV that we watch argues Edelstein, Stephen King has written that horror feeds the alligators of the mind. Yet it remains an open question whether these alligators have a little nap after they fed or get busy making more alligators. In her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Carol Clover argues that many hack ups are empowering. The final girl always slays the monster. But the final girls in Wolf Creek and the Devil's Rejects die ghastly deaths. And while hostile ends with bloody retribution, it's set in a world in which people pay big money for the opportunity to torture and murder, a world of latent serial killers. My first mention is Wolf Creek. And I actually did a big discussion on this in episode 21. So I won't cover it again here, except to say it firmly plants itself in this genre. And I think it's really one of the best examples. And I'd like to discuss Misery. This 1990 film is in my opinion, one of the best Stephen King adaptations out there. It starts as a seemingly normal enough drama film about a man who was rescued from imminent death by a fan of his novels. But the film is so much more than that. Granted, I have not seen it for many years, but most of the scenes in the film have been burned into my memory with great detail. In Nicholas Fonseca's 2007 review for Entertainment Weekly, he says, The tense, gripping thriller follows Sheldon as he recovers from a near-fatal car accident in the remote mountain home of Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates, a jolly fangirl whose crazy cat lady wardrobe and memorable sayings such as, he didn't get out of the cock a car, belie a psychopath who will hold Paul captive, hobble his feet, and try to force him into a suicide pact. Bates was virtually unknown before she played Wilkes. Now it's impossible to see her in anything not be reminded of her ferocious Oscar-winning star turn. It's how perfectly she embodies this role. In his commentary, something of a cheat, since it was actually recorded for a 2003 international DVD release, director Reiner says that Bates was always the first and only choice to play Annie, thanks to screenwriter William Goldman's suggestion. James Kahn was another story. A who's who of leading men, Redford, Hoffman, Beatty, Hackman, Dreyfus, turned down the role before he signed on. A physical actor by nature, James Kahn spent much of the shoot bedridden, and his frustration is palpable in what remains one of his finest performances. A trio of vets, Lauren Bacall, Francis Sternhagen, and the late, great Richard Farnsworth draw welcome yucks in their brief scenes, but Bates and Kahn simply dominate. Misery builds economically to a climactic fight in which every scratch, ding, and wallop feels completely earned. The only misfire is an unnecessary pedestrian coda, and in his commentary track, which is annoyingly separate from Reiner's, Goldman admits that we're scrambling here. None of the other extras amount to much. There's a slew of junky bits, like the exploitative how-to segment, advice for the stalked, if the stalker calls, you hang up, and diagnosing Annie Wilkes. Come now. Do we really need a psychologist to explain that Annie is bipolar? Doesn't Bates convey that well enough? Back to that hobbling scene. Reiner says many fans tell him they consider it the most gruesome movie moment of all time. That's a stretch, but yeesh. 17 years later, it still brings me pain. The movie itself, nothing but pleasure. And the article was from entertainmentweekly.com. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 90%. That is high praise indeed. So I wanted to do a mention on The Devil's Rejects. Scott Tobias stated in his article with the Bluegrass Film Society, October 28, 2006, I feel inclined to defend my pet film, The Devil's Rejects which has more to offer than scrupulously stylized sleaze. What makes the torture scenes in that film fascinating and yes, politically relevant is how effectively Rob Zombie toys with our sympathies and sense of identification. We're introduced to a vengeful cop who wants to take down the rejects who are some of the most gleefully vicious outlaws in movie history. And yet at a certain point his all consuming desire for revenge morphs from righteous to sadistic. By the time he has them tied to a chair and beans torturing them to within the inch of their lives, our sympathies have shifted completely to the rejects, which is especially miraculous considering just how we watch them piteously torture and slaughter the members of the Banjo and Sullivan. Zombie is able to pull it off partly because he's always harbored a sick kinship with these characters as outsiders and rebels, but mostly because the quest for revenge eventually poisons the Avenger. There's sharp political subtext in that idea. Goodness knows, our need to avenge 9-11 seemed a heck of a lot more righteous then than now. But it's so deeply embedded in the story that it doesn't feel planted there by zombie. It just flowers naturally. And that's from bluegrassfilmsociety.blogspot.com. So that ends our discussion on the main topic. I welcome any comments you'd like to send me. But let's move on to the song of the night, Mine Again by Black Lab a favorite band of mine. It's brought to you by the pod show Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at blacklabworld.com. Enjoy.
1: There's a place I used to go Was
0: that's it for the September edition of Darkgate Horror Podcast. Our Halloween episode will discuss the horror comedy cult classic, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and perhaps a couple other horror comedies. I'm not quite sure yet. Thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the pod show, Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.